This is the Darkest Page Podcast. The man arrived at the hotel's foyer, breathless and uneasy. Placing his suitcase down, he retrieved a silk paisley handkerchief from his jacket, removed his spectacles, and proceeded to wipe blood from each lens. No other guest was heard to gasp at his blood-speckled face. No one came rushing to his aid, nor did they make inquiries to establish if he was injured. It was as if such a macabre and unsettling sight was a commonplace occurrence here at the Hotel Valencia. Without the assistance of his spectacles, anything at a distance of more than a few feet was instantly rendered blurry and malformed. For this reason, the man failed to notice the young bellboy that arrived beside him. The bellboy's name has been removed from this story for legal reasons, to protect his identity. No further description will be offered too, save to mention he was born with a cleft lip, a small detail that resonated with the man long into the night, and when reflected upon, reminded him of a curtain being parted in the middle. The bellboy reached for the man's suitcase, and with the reek of hummus and sleep deprivation on his breath, said, you must be Mr. Clemens. Your room is ready, sir. But first, we must check you in. A man fell from the sky, the man replied. It happens a lot, sir. You'll get used to it. Please, follow me. The bellboy led the man through the foyer. Its parquet floor had been polished that morning, attaching to their footsteps a sound similar to a cork being removed from a wine bottle. The only other noise came from an old gramophone that played dance hall music. The man was guided to a lonely reception desk. The bellboy palmed a silver bell, its trill assembling from beneath the counter a pale woman with brick-red hair and butane eyes. Mr. Clemens, how was your journey? asked the woman. The man could smell Marlborough and birth control on her breath. I have blood on my shirt he replied. You can change shortly. This is Harshimlami, your bellboy. He will take you to your room. It has a garden view. I asked for a room without a view. I can assure you, sir, the garden is ill-kept and mostly briar and thistle. It's impossible to see any flowers. Will there be birdsong? No, sir. We have killed all the indigenous birds in this region. Our groundskeeper is ex-military and served as a sniper in the war. Shall we get you checked in? The woman retrieved a heavy ledger from beneath the desk. The sound it made hitting the walnut veneer was not too dissimilar to gunshot and caused the man to jump slightly on impact. The receptionist handed him a fountain pen and pointed to the next available entry. The man glanced briefly at all the names. They read thus, Burt Reynolds, Marie Curie, Mahatma Gandhi, Neil Armstrong. 
The man signed and returned the pen. A man fell from the sky, he told the woman. He landed on the steps outside the hotel. It happens a lot, sir, she said. You'll get used to it. The woman shut the ledger and placed it back beneath the desk. She took a key from one of the holes in the rack behind her and handed it to the man. May I ask the title of the music playing? He asked, tendering each word as if they had been stretched out on a torture rack. Valencia by Paul Whiteman and his orchestra. By request of the proprietor of the hotel, Mr. Balcazar. It's from where the hotel derived its name. Does it change? Change? No, sir. The song is played 24 hours a day. What well, doesn't that get annoying? The woman's jaw stiffened. Mr. Balcazar was a great man, she said, eye twitching. Annoyance cannot be factored into it. The man turned to the bellboy whose face remained passive. Breakfast is served at 7am to 8am in the grand dining room, continued the woman. Lunch 12.30pm to 1.30pm. Dinner is served between 6pm and 7pm. Your table is number 501, the same as your room number. We ask all our guests remain at their table during mealtimes. There is no need to leave for a toilet break as the chairs also serve as a commode. You must not talk to any of the other guests during your stay with us. Most are depressed and anxious, a combination that makes for a very dull conversation. It is best to eat alone and spend your time mulling over your own regrets, not anyone else's. The woman feigned a smile that cracked her foundation cream and revealed teeth smudged red with lipstick. When did you last masturbate? she asked. Yesterday, replied the man. We encourage all our guests to masturbate at least three times a day. It helps to relax the body in advance of the procedure. Beside your bed is a small cabinet. Inside you'll find various magazines and accoutrements to assist. Accoutrement? The woman smiled. The bellboy smiled. The man did not. If there is anything else you need, please ring and we'll endeavour to assist the best we can. Do you have any questions, sir? He asked, When do I die? The woman snapped her fingers, alerting the bellboy to pick up the man's suitcase. She replied, You're scheduled for termination tomorrow evening, 9pm. Please bath before then. Is there anything else I can help you with? The man shook his head. Then all that is left is for me to do is welcome you to the Hotel Valencia. We hope you enjoy your brief stay with us before you are terminated. The bellboy opened the door to room 501. A clinic smell hung in the air similar to that found in dentists' or hospital corridors. The bellboy stepped over the divide and was consumed instantly by the darkness lurking within. The man waited at the door patiently. Are you okay? he asked, but the bellboy did not respond. The man looked down the long corridor where doors equal in detail and coated with the same white gloss flanked a tongue-red carpet. He hoped to see another person so he could inform them he had lost his bellboy and suitcase, but there was no one there. 
The man edged forward, pushing his nose further into the room. A burst of sunlight compelled him to squint. When he opened his eyes, he saw the bellboy silhouetted by sunlight, bleeding in from the window behind him. At that exact moment, a rotund figure descended past the window accompanied by a laboured cry. A dull thud followed as the body landed on the ground below. The man pointed towards the window. There, he said, another one has fallen from the sky. The bellboy looked out of the window. I believe that is Mr. Van Gogh from room 623. The artist? Impossible, sir, replied the bellboy. The real Van Gogh suffered with vertigo and would have requested a ground floor room. Tell me, Shimlami, why must we refrain from using our real names? The bellboy was about to answer when the groan of a poorly fitted floorboard announced the arrival of a woman. She introduced herself as Madame X. She had an Eastern European accent and had hair the colour found under the nails of Coleman. The bellboy became more subdued and scuttled toward the door. Before leaving, he cranked back his lip and whispered a word toward the man that sounded a lot like, run. I assume the room is to your liking, asked Madame X. A surely looking chest of drawers glowered in the corner, beside a small cabinet which presumably contained tools to aid relaxation, was a single bed mummified in white cotton sheets. There were no pictures or mirrors on any of the walls. Another door led to a small bathroom where inside a shower, toilet and sink huddled together against prison tiles. It's fine replied the man. Madame X sat down on the end of the bed and patted the space next to her, the pallor of the linen complementing her skin. Will you join me, Mr. Clemens? Bedsprings whimpered as it took the full weight of his frame. He had been meaning to start a diet, but the critical voice in his head convinced him the damage incurred to his body over the years from overindulgence and lack of exercise was irreparable. And to what purpose would it serve if he did lose weight? A longer life? One that may garner interest from the opposite sex? He had passion for neither, and yet he found the proximity of the woman a tonic to what had been a lonely five years since his wife's death. For this reason, he consumed the perfume of talc on her skin and a scent similar to a butcher's shop. The man allowed the quince and cocaine on her breath to loiter at the back of his throat. To assure we are absolved of any legal disputes following your death, I need you to agree to the terms and conditions relating to the contract sent to you two months ago. I spoke to the gentleman on the phone before I arrived, said the man. I made it clear that you could do whatever you want to my body after I am dead. Be that as it may, renunciation of your mortality requires more than just a pleasant conversation, Mr. Clemens. Madame X produced from her inside jacket a small handheld device. She asked the man to place his finger upon its screen. Your fingerprint will act as a digital signature, allowing us to inject you with a lethal dose of pancuronium bromide, which in turn will cause paralysis of your diaphragm and the rest of your respiratory muscles eventually leading to your death by asphyxiation. Once death has been confirmed by our on-site physician, your body will be taken to the infirmary where an industrial incinerator will reduce your remains to ash. What will happen to the ash? 
asked the man, feigning interest so he could briefly look into her eyes. In the summer we use it to control pond algae, and in the winter we scatter them over the steps leading to the hotel to help melt the snow. The man nodded and placed his fingerprint on the machine. A beam of green light rolled down the screen. Madame X returned to her feet, leaving the man forsaken and insecure again. Can I ask one more question? The woman nodded. Why must we never use our real names? A smile settled across Madame X's face, buckling her brow and rendering her expression akin to a person suffering with wind. It's the first stage of detachment. Those that attend Valencia must do so under their preferred pseudonym to help uncouple from what they were. We have found that most people assume the name of someone respected in history. It is better to die as a somebody rather than a nobody. Wouldn't you agree, Mr. Clemens? The man did not respond. In the dining room, small speakers attached to the walls played Valencia on loop. As described by the receptionist, a hole had been punched through the chair's seat, beneath which a blue bucket sat waiting. To his left, and hunched over a bowl of soup, sat a morose-looking woman in her late fifties, with dishwater hair and ashen complexion. The man happily concluded that the tarnished gold wedding ring upon her finger probably marked the last time she smiled. He looked around the room where about half a dozen other people sat eating their meal like tiny beetles. He glanced to his right and found a woman staring back at him on the next table. Her eyes were intense, and for this reason, he assumed she was unhinged. He was about to turn away when she whispered, They will make you into a pair of shoes. To avoid engaging in conversation, the man began cleaning his cutlery with his napkin. The young woman hissed to attract his attention. Psst! Did you hear me? She asked. The smell of garlic and gingivitis travelled within each of her vowels. My name is Helen, after the daughter of Zeus and Leda. We're not supposed to talk to each other, he whispered from the side of his mouth. Surreptitiously, a waiter arrived beside him, causing the man to drop the knife. Bending down to retrieve them, he noted the waiter's shoes. They were not standard attire. The black leather had been distressed, and as he leant closer, he noted what looked like human hair sprouting from the heel. Your onion soup, sir, said the waiter, placing a bowl upon the table. Would you care for new cutlery? The man resurfaced, beet red and wheezing. I'm fine. Splendid, sir. As quickly as he arrived, the waiter slipped away without sound. You saw them, didn't you? Helen whispered. His shoes? The man refused to say anything and began eating the soup. I'm in the room next to yours. I plan on relaxing myself around 8.30pm. Once I'm finished, I'll bang three times on the wall. Use one of the glasses from the bathroom to assist in hearing me through the wall. The man stared at the soup. An oily residue floated on the surface. What makes you think I care? He muttered. Helen fixed her eyes on the chicken Kiev before her and said, You only realise what love is when you lose it. 
same with life. The man was lying on the bed when he heard Helen moan from the adjacent room. This was followed by a high-pitched squeal similar to a pig being lowered into boiling hot water. A minute later, there were three bangs on his wall. The man retrieved the glass from the bathroom and placed it on the wall. Through the rush of blood in his ears, he heard the faint breath of Helen. Are you there? She asked. The man issued his fist on the wall as a reply. You may not care what happens to you after you're dead, she continued, but it's immoral what they're doing here. I have a contact, one of the hotel staff. He tells me they are skinning the bodies to make shoes for wealthy people. They sell the meat to a local butcher for sausages and other savoury produce. Meet me outside the back of the restaurant in half an hour. There are no cameras there. Helen stopped talking and the man lay back on the bed. Four inches of brick separated them, but he could still smell her through the air vents. He wondered for a moment if the heady mix of sweat and vaginal fluid would make for a popular scent candle aimed at lonely men. Before the man had contemplated ending his life, he was gamefully employed at a large chemical company as a breath odour evaluator. The position required him to smell the tooth cavities and tongue fungus of various individuals, an unattractive but essential job to aid the company in establishing how well its new super cavity cool mint toothpaste eliminated the stench of those with poor dental routines. The man's acute sense of smell had been a gift, and at times a hindrance. As a child, he would breathe only through his mouth around adults and teachers as their proximity brought with it odours that turned his stomach, mostly coffee and cigarettes, and in the case of his geography teacher, Mr. Bradshaw, cannabis. With his mouth agape, he had adopted an expression that rendered him apathetic and docile. Combined with a reticence to talk, he had been referred to the school pastor, who, as fate would have it, had a penchant for German sausage and smoked mackerel. Endless psychometric testing were undertaken, and though his grades were good and reports positive, he was labelled socially awkward and advised to seek employment that required little to no contact with human beings. After leaving school, he applied for a bank loan and set up his own business creating scented candles. His gift in detecting the subtle scents found in nostalgia allowed for a flourishing venture where the burning of wick could conjure up memories of swimming baths or the seaside. He had candles that released pheromones and hints of cologne and dry-cured meats for single women seeking the company of men. There were candles too for rainy days, sunny days, and days where the mild aroma of a passing carnival still germinated the air. He was unbeaten in the candle-making business, but in matters of the heart he found himself a failure. His susceptibility to strong scents, especially perfume, meant that being in the presence of a woman irritated his nose and brought on vile headaches. Had it not been for a young woman by the name of Rose Hemlock joining the lab in the summer of 1984, the man had resigned himself to a long and lonely life as a bachelor. Rose fell into the 2% of the world born with the ABCC11 gene, a condition that prevented her armpits from producing odour. With no need for perfume or body spray, she had remained unmemorable to most men a scentless flower that added a certain irony to her name. 
but the man found her desolate skin rousing, and for once in his life allowed him to be close to another person with mouth firmly closed. They married the following summer. He detected the cancer before the doctors. Shortly after their twentieth wedding anniversary, a smell like that of sour wine lingering on the bed linen and Rose's breath. His first thoughts were that she had turned to drink to counterweigh the boredom of marriage. But when he tackled the subject, Rose had not detected the smell and was still very much in love with him. When the bathroom began to smell like rotting fish, the man insisted she see her doctor. Several tests revealed an undifferentiated cancerous mass in her uterus. Rose was informed it was at stage four. Until that meeting with Helen outside the hotel kitchen, no other number had weighed so heavily upon him. We must be furtive, Helen said, eyes darting back and forth as if she were watching a tennis match. The man reverted to mouth-breathing to manage the stink from the refuge bins outside the kitchen area. He was aware his expression might be interpreted as indifference towards what Helen was going to disclose, so he widened his eyes and exaggerated every movement of brow to show willing. The bellboy, Yamal Mishra, have you met him? He showed me to my room, replied the man, trying his best to suppress the bile rising to his throat. He's not a real bellboy. He looks like a bellboy. It's a guy's. He is in fact a reporter working for a newspaper in the city. He took the job a few months ago after receiving an anonymous letter detailing the horrid truth of this hotel. Do you smoke? The man shook his head. Helen fidgeted and scratched at her arm, revealing the number four tattooed on her wrist. You smoke? asked the man. He had not detected the smoke on her fingers or breath. No, but whenever I get nervous I think it's appropriate to try. I still don't understand why this has anything to do with me, he said. I told Madame X that I had no instructions or requests regarding my remains. And if you end up in a pie, and that pie is then served to a child, do you not care that it'll be eating human flesh? A shadow passed by the restaurant window, forcing Helen to grab the man by his arm and pull him down beneath the ledge, out of view. The smell of her skin reminded him of overused pillowcases and morning teeth. Come with me, she whispered. Where? We can escape before it's too late. It is too late. That's why I'm here. She pressed her fingers to his chest. Do you know how it feels to have your heart removed? The man reflected on the final days with Rose, the squeaky wheel of a meal trolley, the fusty stench of the oncologist's breath, the hum of a table lamp, the beep from the machine. The man could still feel every raised vein on his wife's hand before it relaxed and slipped from his. My boy was three years old when he was diagnosed. Helen continued. I held him for five hours in my arms until he closed his eyes for the very last time. I can say, in those final moments, I offered him a much better place than this hotel will show any person. The man asked, then leave if it troubles you so much. They do not allow you to leave. The bellboy told me that the groundskeeper will shoot anyone attempting to escape. He's ex-military. Once Madame X scans your fingerprint, you are the property of Hotel Valencia. 
There are no second chances if you change your mind. Change your mind? Instead of death, you opt for life. The man heard the faint sound of Paul Whiteman crooning about orange trees from the hotel speakers. The bellboy tells me there is a changeover of staff between 4am and 4.15am. The reception will be abandoned for 15 minutes as will the grounds. There is weakness in the fence that runs along the lower garden. It can be seen easily as it faces a chair of fountains strangled by ivy. I am scheduled to be terminated by 10am tomorrow morning. Meet me there at 4am. Let's escape together and tell the truth of this horrible place. The man pointed to the number four tattoo. What's the significance of that? He asked. It's the number of years my boy spent with me. I want this number to mark the beginning of my life, not the end of his. The man had spent so long planning his end he never considered the prospect of living it again. He had sold his home, paid off the mortgage and settled all bills. Subscriptions had been cancelled and all the money he owed donated to cancer research. A resignation letter had been drafted and sent to his boss. Any clothes that were not on his back had been dropped off at the charity shops. There was nothing for him beyond that fence. What name did you assume? asked Helen. George Clemens, said the man. Who was George Clemens? she asked. A lab technician where I worked. In the summer of 1984 he had a cardiac arrest while cleaning out some beakers. There were only two other people in the room. A young woman called Rose Hemlock and myself. She and I ran to help George, though neither of us knew CPR. We tried for 11 minutes to resuscitate him. George never spoke of his personal life nor did he have a bad word to say about anyone who worked at the lab. When the paramedics came and took away his body, Rose and I were told to go home. But neither of us wanted to, so we ended up at a small cafe. We talked about George and shared what little bits we knew about him. An hour passed, maybe two. By the end we were talking about ourselves, where we grew up, what interested us, that kind of thing. The man leant in and lowered his voice. I never had a hero. No one has ever done anything to change my life. But the day George Clemens died, he changed mine forever. That's why I chose him. The man awoke the next morning with a start, fevered and disorientated. A thin slice of sunlight slipped through the curtains. The hands of his watch gestured towards 6.46am. He dressed quickly and made his way to Helen's door. Knuckles wrapped the white gloss as his voice called her name. When there was no reply, he ran to the reception. The woman with butane eyes stood proud behind the desk. The man did not offer a word, choosing instead to run towards the dining room with the impetuosity of a gazelle. Breakfast is served at 7am, said the woman. You cannot enter the dining room until... Mr. Clemens! Mr. Clemens! Closing the dining room threshold, he heard her pick up the telephone receiver and call for security. The grand hall with its ornate gold cornikins, corbels and hand-painted ceiling depicting the angels strumming harps jarred with the horror of seeing the staff carving slithers of meat from the torso of a human being. Upon seeing him, 
they turned and rushed him with various cutleries in hand. The man bobbed and ran around tables in a bid to avoid capture, but years of poor nutrition and lack of exercise slowed him enough to be struck upon the head with a silver ladle. As he fell to the floor and the murk of unconsciousness crept in around his vision, the last thing that man saw was the number four tattooed upon the sole of the waiter's shoe. When he opened his eyes for the second time that day, the man was met by the familiar cleft lip of the bellboy. They've moved your termination forward, he said quietly. A fluorescent tube of light mounted to the ceiling cast a sallow veneer on all the walls. Leather straps ran across the man's wrists and ankles binding him to a leather chair. Helen? The bellboy shook his head. She knew too much, said the bellboy. They feared she would escape and tell people what is going on here. They fear the same of you now. Don't let me die like this, the man pleaded. The bellboy looked behind him toward the door, preempting the arrival of Madame X. We must be quick then. I can untie you, but I cannot guarantee you'll make it off the grounds. The injection will be far less painful than what they'll do should they capture you. What are my options? Helen mentioned a vulnerable spot on a fence in the lower garden. Too risky in broad daylight. The groundskeeper will shoot you in the leg to slow you down. Then I'll hide out in the hotel until there's a change in shift. They have sniffer dogs trained to find the most creative of escapes. Only last Tuesday they taught a bit of resident hiding in the air vents. Then there is nothing I can do. He resigned. I will accept my fate. But there is something you can do. It may not be the answer you were hoping for, but I know it has proven successful in the past. The bellboy articulated the man's only option. He then untied the straps and the two men embraced each other like brothers. With head pressed to his chest, Shimlami offered his parting words. Do you know why humans pursue happiness? He asked. We are born to solve puzzles, Mr. Clemens, and happiness is the greatest of them all. He had made it to the roof of the hotel without being seen. A mist skulked across the unkempt grounds. The absence of birdsong reminiscent of the time he and Rose visited the site of Auschwitz. Headlamps of a cab pushed through the mist in the distance. Another resident ignorant of the horror awaiting them. The man peered over and observed the bloodstained steps below him that led to the entrance of the hotel. Palms prickled as he mounted the ledge his heart beating quicker than it ever did for Rose. He shuffled forward inch by inch until the ballast of his frame relented, and a wind that held no scent embraced him as he fell. He did not speak any final words as he plummeted to the concrete below. He did not cry out or repent. Instead, the man known only as Mr. Clemens remained solemn and dignified as the ground grew larger with every passing second. The ashen-faced man arrived at the hotel's foyer gasping for breath, hands shaking and skin smudged with blood. Shimlami, the bellboy, arrived promptly with chin extended and smile crooked and uneven. He handed the man a small tissue and leant in to grab his suitcase.
You must be Mr. Mandela, he said amiably. Your room is ready, sir, but first we must check you in. A man fell from the sky, stuttered the man as he wiped his face. Oh, that, said the bellboy, tendering a smile. Do not worry. It happens a lot here. Thank you for listening to the Darkest Page podcast. This has been Farewell Valencia by Craig Walwork. Farewell Valencia is from Human Tenderloins, a collection of horror stories available now at Amazon. This episode was made possible with the support of the librarians of the Darkest Page, Alex Smith and Tonks. And a special thanks to Craig Walwick, giving us permission to record his story. I have been your host, and I wish you pleasant dreams.